What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, and welcome to my podcast. This is an audio version of my videos, available to make listening to my stuff in the background easier than YouTube makes it. But since my videos are primarily made for YouTube, there may be occasional references to visual materials. If you'd like this podcast ad-free, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash vicerhino. Please enjoy. Hello, and welcome to my channel. Vice Rhino here. Today, I'm looking at a video that was suggested by Jen on Twitter called Five Apologetics Questions Every Christian Should Learn How to Answer by former Christian pop semi-star Alisa Childers, formerly of the band Zoe Girl. I'm curious which questions she considers to be the most important, so I thought I'd go ahead and check it out. Let's go! First Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yep, that's one of my favorite Bible verses. It basically demands that Christians be able to explain why they're Christian. It's a nice little counter to the Romans 120 thing, where everyone is really a secret Christian, but they just won't admit it to themselves, so explaining why we should believe in the Christian God is unnecessary, because the Bible already says that we believe in him. Yeah, sure, but the Bible also says you have to be able to explain why you believe in him, so you can just go ahead and stop accusing me of being a secret Christian in denial until you can explain why you actually believe in the Christian God. Every Christian is called to be prepared to make a defense for what we believe. And the word that's used here, translated into English as defense, is the Greek word apologia. And this is where we get our English word apologetics. Yep. Now, I would argue that apologetics shouldn't really be necessary. It seems weird to me that God would rely on fallible people to spread the message of his existence when he could just prove his existence to everyone conclusively by himself if he actually wanted people to believe in him. And no, just showing himself to everyone and directly relaying the salvation message to us without using middlemen would not negate free will. We'd still be free to deny him, and in fact Romans 1.20 already says that we do. So at the end of the day, if anyone goes to their grave without a certainty that God exists, that's God's fault for not providing them with that certainty. Christian apologetics basically has two goals. Number one, to provide reasons why Christianity is true. And number two, to communicate those reasons to the world. And again, you would expect that God would be the most effective communicator possible. So I wouldn't expect any books or resources other than the Bible to be necessary, because the Bible is supposed to be the word of God. When an apologist writes a book on a subject, this action carries with it the implication that the word of God was inadequate when it came to explaining that particular subject. And it just seems odd to me that you would consider God to be the absolute perfect being while simultaneously thinking that the book he wrote was inadequate. 
Today, we're going to talk through five basic apologetics questions that I think every Christian should be prepared to answer. Now, this can seem overwhelming when we see the broad spectrum of skeptical claims that's brought against Christianity or the many questions brought about by honest seekers. This might seem like a nitpicky point, but I really don't like the way that you separate people who are skeptical of your claims and people who are honestly seeking answers to questions into two different categories. Skepticism is a healthy attitude to have, and despite the frequent misuse of the term skeptic to just mean someone who denies claims in spite of all the evidence for the claim, an appropriate use of skepticism is to honestly seek answers to questions. In the case of Christianity, there are many questions about things that don't make sense, and the apologetic answers to these questions are usually very inadequate. So number one, have the New Testament documents been corrupted? Short answer, yes. Longer answer, yes, but. Longer answer still, yes, but, and. Longest answer, yes, but, and, but. So if by corrupted you mean changed from their original, then yes, they absolutely have. The ending of Mark, the story of the woman caught in adultery, and the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, and a lot more, are all late additions to the books. So yes, they have been corrupted, but modern scholars are pretty good at figuring out where they have been corrupted, and we likely have been able to put together a relatively faithful compilation of what the original texts are most likely to have looked like. And these alterations are usually things that just don't have significant theological implications. But a lot of them really do have significant theological implications. There are entire denominations that have sprung up based on verses that were not in the original text. And importantly, denominations like this, the Appalachian snake handlers for instance, have a death toll associated with their practices that are based entirely on verses that were not in the originals. So the real question here is, how do we determine which version is the Word of God? Should Mark 16 end at verse 8 as it likely did in its original form? Why was a later author making changes to the word of God an acceptable action for them to take, but a modern author doing the same thing would be universally frowned upon? In fact, that's one of the key things that is brought up when you look into the Christian debate about which version of the Bible to use, whether or not the translators are adding things in that weren't in the manuscripts, or taking things out that were. So just by looking at the different translations of the English Bible, we can clearly see that the Bible has been corrupted, and we know that the ancient authors sometimes added to or subtracted from the text, so these corruptions are not a new occurrence, they've been happening for the entire history of the text. Well, obviously, when the New Testament was being written, we didn't have a printing press, so each manuscript had to be copied by hand. And when the original documents no longer exist, scholars use a science called textual criticism to reconstruct the wording of ancient texts. When they have a lot of manuscripts and early manuscripts, they can do this with a great deal of accuracy. Okay, but one of the main problems here is that Yes, we do have a lot of New Testament manuscripts, and we do have some fairly early manuscripts, but the early and lots adjectives don't go together here. There are a handful of scraps of manuscripts that could be considered relatively early, but the lots don't show up until about the 9th century, with there being a grand total of eight tiny fragments of manuscripts from the first two centuries. In fact, until the 4th century, there are a mere hundred or so manuscripts, most of which are these small fragments, with the most complete containing a few of the epistles and sizable chunks of John and Luke. 
the first complete New Testament finally shows up in the 4th century. Now, don't get me wrong, the numbers and completeness of the manuscripts for the New Testament are definitely significant, but there is a period of centuries during which we have essentially no record as to what changes may have been made to the text. It's not that I think there necessarily were changes being made, it's that we have no way of knowing that they were not, and you'd expect better of a book that is supposed to be the Word of God. The New Testament documents have more manuscripts and earlier manuscripts to support their accuracy than any work of ancient classical literature. Well, any work of ancient classic literature didn't become the founding document of a religion that was spread through military conquest by one of the most powerful empires the world has ever seen now, did it? Of course, the real kicker here is the use of the word manuscript. The Bible does do pretty well when we look at ancient documents when they were composed and when our oldest manuscripts date to, but if you expand past the narrow definition of manuscript as just being a handwritten copy of something, we could talk about something like the Code of Hammurabi, for which we have a stele that dates to the time of the Code's original writing, leaving us with the very real possibility that this stele actually is the original. And it predates the entire Bible by a good chunk, with a lot of the ancient Hebrew law code likely being based on it. But really, this whole argument is kind of pointless. How many copies of something there are, and how faithful these copies are to the originals, doesn't actually say anything about the truth of the content of the originals. Also worth mentioning is that there are manuscripts that exist for the Quran that can be fairly confidently dated to within a couple decades of the death of Muhammad, and these are not tiny scraps, but full pages. So if we're talking about reliable ancient documents, the Quran seems to fare better than the Bible. Just some food for thought. In fact, most scholars agree that the New Testament has been copied with an unprecedented high level of accuracy. There's really just a very small percentage of variations between the manuscripts that affect the meaning of the text. But when those variations do affect the meaning of the text, oh boy, do they ever. Aside from the aforementioned ending to Mark, Lord's Prayer, and Woman Caught in Adultery, the most explicit reference to the Trinity to be found in the entire Bible seems to have been a late addition to the text. 1 John 5, 7-8 reads, For there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. But if we omit the portion of the verse that is absent in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, it reads, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. This minor change has significant theological implications. Without the addition of the later manuscripts, the Bible never explicitly mentions the existence of the Trinity. This was the only place where it could be found. The Trinity is a significant part of the foundation of most Christian denominations today, and with the absence of this one part of the passage, the Bible doesn't even mention it. And among those, there isn't one that calls into question any cardinal Christian doctrine. Whoops. Whoops. Whoopsie. Question number two. Is there any evidence that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened? That depends on how low you're willing to lower the bar of what counts as evidence. Now, rather than just get into a discussion of the definition of evidence and what counts as evidence, what doesn't count as evidence, I'll just go ahead and use the qualifier good here. There's no good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Then, even if you count the words of non-eyewitnesses written decades after the event as evidence that the event happened, my answer still applies. 
So esteemed historian and New Testament scholar Gary Habermas collected over 1,400 of the most critical scholarly works written between 1975 and 2003 about the resurrection of Jesus. These works ranged from the ultra-liberal to the far-right conservative, and he discovered that virtually every scholar agreed on several points surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Ah, yes, the minimal facts argument. The argument so banal that even if we accept everything that Habermas says about it at face value, it breaks down to Jesus was a real guy who died, we don't know where his body went, and a bunch of people thought they saw him alive after he was dead. This wouldn't be enough to prove that someone came back from the dead even if something similar like this were to happen today, and we could interview the people that claim to have seen the person alive after the fact. So given that it wouldn't be enough to prove that someone came back from the dead today, why should we accept such pathetic evidence as proof that Jesus came back from the dead 2,000 years ago when there are so many unknowns? Also, fun fact, but the list of facts that are considered minimal for this minimal facts argument keeps shrinking. It was originally about 12 facts. You have said there are at least 12 historical facts that are virtually agreed by all critical scholars today. I'd like you to let us know what the case is. Start us off tonight. But over time, it shrank down to just six. Here are four of them. Number one, that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Lots of people died by Roman crucifixion. That's not special in the slightest. I know the he died part of the argument is mostly just a counter swoon theory, the idea that he fainted on the cross and recovered in the tomb, but really the most likely scenario for Jesus is that he was crucified and then tossed into a mass grave, as was the custom at the time. Number two, that Jesus' disciples believed he rose from the dead and appeared to them and were willing to suffer and die for these beliefs. We only have one instance of anyone claiming for themselves that they saw a risen Jesus, Paul. No one else in the Bible claims that they themselves were a witness to the resurrection. There are stories told of the actions of the various disciples and apostles, but there is little to no verification or corroboration of anything contained within these stories, and the majority of them are found in books that are considered by modern Christians to be heretical. In other words, they don't consider these to be trustworthy sources, except when they describe how willing the disciples were to die for their belief in Jesus. Then, suddenly we can trust them for that detail, but only that detail. Number three, that the church persecutor Paul suddenly became a Christian after having an experience that he believed was the risen Jesus. Yep, that's probably the most well-attested fact on the list. And the most plausible explanation here, in my opinion, is that Paul had a hallucination. Hallucinations are known to happen. Resurrections are not. Hallucinations are often considered to be experiences with religious significance, and Paul changed his religion after his hallucination. Maybe there was a hallucinogen involved, maybe it was a psychotic break, who knows? But one thing is certain, hallucinations are real, well-documented, and well-studied phenomena. I mean, hey, it's also possible that he just saw an opportunity to be a grifter. There are all sorts of demands in his letters that the parishioners take good care of those who work for God, so he might just have been looking for an easy paycheck. But didn't he end up being executed by the Romans because of his Christianity and without repenting? Yeah, well, Joseph Smith ended up in prison for his beliefs, and he was ultimately killed for his beliefs without repenting. Does that mean Mormonism is true? No, it does not. 
Number four, the brother of Jesus and famously skeptical James was suddenly converted after he believed he had seen the risen Jesus. The only place in the Bible that actually says that James saw a risen Jesus is 1 Corinthians 15, which is a church creed that has unknown origins. So what does this mean? This means that we don't actually know what, if anything, James saw. We just know that it was a fairly early tradition of the church that James saw something. Later accounts tell us that James was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' lifetime, though not specifically James by name, just as an assumption that James was included as a brother of Jesus. Is it really inconceivable that James might have wanted to continue his brother's work and ministry? Maybe he came around and started following Jesus while he was alive, and so he took on the mantle of leadership once he died. Maybe he really loved his brother, and as often happens when you lose a loved one, he had a bereavement hallucination where he thought he had a conversation with him, and he interpreted this as Jesus having been resurrected. This is all speculation, of course, but none of it is outside of the realm of plausibility. But an actual resurrection still is. Habermas also noted that somewhere around 75% of scholars also agree that Jesus' tomb was found empty. That's one of the facts that was on the original list of 12 facts, but didn't make the cut, and so has now been discarded. Habermas does not include an empty tomb on his list of facts because too many scholars don't actually think there's sufficient evidence for a tomb burial in the first place, much less that this tomb was found empty after the burial. The best explanation of these minimal facts is that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected from the dead. No, that is most definitely not the best explanation. There have been literally thousands of people who have claimed to have seen Elvis alive after he died. Is the best explanation for this phenomenon that Elvis is actually still alive? Or at least was alive a lot longer than is commonly believed? No, of course not. That would just be silly. But this is the same level of argumentation that we get from the minimal facts argument. This brings us to question number three. Has science disproved God? Yes. Well, the Christian one at least, because there are very specific things listed in the Bible that Christians should be able to do if they believe in God, and none of those things are reliably observed among Christians. Now, of course, the easy out here is the fact that this list is found at the end of Mark 16 in the section that is absent in the earliest manuscripts, and so it's pretty much universally accepted by scholars that this passage is not in the original text. But that leaves us with the question, why then is this passage included in the Bible? Even Christian apologetics websites seem to be hesitant about answering this question. GotQuestions.org asks the question of whether or not it should be in the Bible, but it never actually directly answers the question, instead spending the entire article explaining how we know that this ending is not in the original text. Great, I know it's not original, so why is it in my Bible? Is it the Word of God? Did God forget to include it when he was inspiring the original author who wrote the Book of Mark, and so he had to inspire a later author to include it as an amendment? Was the information in this ending not relevant to the first few centuries of Christians? So we're left with two options here. Option one, the word of God is corrupted in a major way and so cannot be trusted. Or option two, all Christians have miracle healing powers, the ability to drink poison and speak in tongues. Since option two is obviously false, we have to go with option one. And I would suggest that a God who can't stop his perfect message from being corrupted is not worthy of the title God. Ergo, the Christian God does not exist. Scientists study the material world, and by definition, God is not material. In fact, the statement, God does not exist, is not actually a statement of science. It's a philosophical statement. I mean, I guess you're technically correct, in the same sense that saying magic does not exist is not a scientific statement, but a philosophical one. 
But you don't see many people arguing that scientists should consider magic as potential explanations for natural phenomena, Well, you do see apologists arguing that not only should scientists consider God as the explanation for certain natural phenomena, but asserting that because we don't have perfect naturalistic explanations yet, God must, in fact, be the only possible explanation. It can't be proven in a lab. So in order for scientists to assert that God does not exist, they have to filter their evidence through the philosophical lens of materialism. Not really, no. You can start with the hypothesis, the Christian God exists, and then see what it would take to falsify this hypothesis. By looking at the Bible, we see that it definitely lists some criteria by which we could falsify this hypothesis. So we design an experiment that will test these criteria. Well, actually, in a lot of cases, that would be unethical, so they don't really get put to the test quite as rigorously as we might like. But there are a bunch of Christian groups out there who are happy to experiment on themselves in these matters, like the aforementioned Appalachian snake handlers, who have an unusually high rate of death by snake bite. And then there's the denominations that forego medical treatment in the place of prayer and laying on of hands, which have significant instances of their practitioners dying of otherwise treatable diseases or medical problems. My point is, it's supposed to be obvious to us who the real Christians are, because they're supposed to be able to perform these specific signs. But there is no group of Christians that is actually successful in this endeavor, leading to the conclusion that either the true version of Christianity is one of the ones that was lost to history, or that Christianity in general is false. Either one of these options leaves us with the fact that the modern Christian God does not exist which excludes the possibility of anything outside the material realm. Frank Turek offers this illustration in his book, Stealing from God. Quote, to say that a scientist can disprove the existence of God is like saying a mechanic can disprove the existence of Henry Ford. It doesn't follow. I mean, if there wasn't really any good evidence that Henry Ford existed, and the only reason anyone believed that he did exist was because of a book that was published by the Ford Motor Company several decades after his alleged death, then it might very well be that a mechanic would be the kind of person who would know where to look for evidence for or against his existence. But Turek's never been great at analogies, so I'm not really surprised that this one didn't work. Question number four. Does the Bible condone slavery? Yes, it absolutely does. When Americans hear the word slave, we think of the abuse and forced labor of African Americans in the antebellum South. Yeah, the antebellum South, which based a lot of its slavery laws on the slavery laws of the Old Testament. Were they identical? Of course not. But the fact that you have to dance around the cultural connotations associated with the word slave instead of just pointing to a passage where the Bible says something along the lines of thou shalt not own people as property for verily people are not property thus saith the Lord is quite telling. But when we look to the Old Testament system that God instituted, the Hebrew word ebed, which is often translated as slave in English, did not carry the same negative connotation it does in our modern context. How can you know that? How can you possibly pretend to know what feelings a word stirred up in a person who lived 3,000 years ago? You don't have the required knowledge of that person's culture, language, or their lived experiences. Even so, not everyone would have had the same connotation associated with that word in that culture at that time. I'd imagine that the foreign slaves who are permanent slaves passed down as inherited property from generation to generation would feel a bit differently about the word abed than one of the six-year temporary indentured servitude slaves did, and they would feel differently than the slave owners did. And which class of people do you suppose were in charge of writing down the laws concerning slavery, do you think? 
So in ancient Israel, this type of servanthood was a system in which a destitute person could voluntarily work to pay off a debt. Although it wasn't a perfect system, they were given food and shelter, legal rights, and protection from physical mistreatment. After seven years, they were released from their debt and servitude and given a generous gift of flocks and wine and grain. This depends very much on where in the Bible you're reading. If you're in Exodus 21, this applies to Hebrew men only, and they don't get a bunch of stuff when they leave, they just leave. The women are permanent slaves, and if the man who sells himself into slavery is given a wife by his master during his period of servitude, then she and any children she has belong to the master permanently, and if he wishes to stay with his family, he has to agree to become a permanent slave himself. Now, if we're in Deuteronomy, then the women go free as well, same as the men, and the choice to become a permanent slave is now much more voluntary. If we're in Leviticus, then the Hebrews who sell themselves into slavery remain slaves until the year of Jubilee, which comes around once every 50 years, so in a worst-case scenario, you could be stuck as a debt slave for almost a full 50 years. And this is where it tells you that non-Israelites are okay to keep as permanent slaves that you can pass on to your kids as inheritance. So yeah, in a very limited context, some of the slavery practiced in ancient Israel was voluntary debt slavery, which is still immoral, but slightly less immoral than straight-up chattel slavery, which they also practiced, and which the Bible also condones. In some cases, the Israelites kept servants from surrounding nations as a result of war, but they were commanded to treat them humanely, and those servants were also protected from mistreatment under biblical law. Slaves. The word you're looking for there and trying to not say is slaves. When you keep someone against their will and force them to do work for you, the word for that is slave, even if there are laws saying that you're not allowed to abuse them. But really, the laws saying you aren't allowed to abuse them don't actually say that. What they do say is that there are limits to how much you can abuse them. You're allowed to, even expected to, beat your slaves with a rod, just not so harshly that they die from the beating, at least not for a couple days. The book of Proverbs tells you that a slave will not be instructed by words alone, and that a person who pampers a slave from childhood will find him to be rebellious. So you're not allowed to beat your slaves to death, but you're definitely allowed to beat them. Well, if we're comparing this to the antebellum South, there were several states that made it illegal to kill or mistreat your slaves, giving judges the authority to force the sale of any slaves you did mistreat. The problem here is that apologists will often compare the actual treatment of slaves in the American South with the intentions of the legal code of the ancient Israelites. But that's not a fair comparison. If we're trying to determine whether one version is moral and the other is immoral, then we need to either compare the actual behavior in both instances, or just the legal code in both instances. Unfortunately for the apologists, the form of slavery that they wished to distance themselves from was, legally speaking, very similar to ancient Hebrew slavery. Certainly not identical, but if you think the institution is moral because it forbade the mistreatment of slaves, then why would that not also apply to, say, the Louisiana Civil Code of 1825, which in Article 192 states that no master shall be compelled to sell his slave but in one of two cases, let's skip the first, that's irrelevant here, the second, when the master shall be convicted of cruel treatment of his slave, and the judge shall deem proper to pronounce besides the penalty established for such cases, that the slave shall be sold at a public auction in order to place him out of reach of the power his master has abused. Article 173 states that a master may correct and chastise him, the slave, though not the unusual rigor, nor so as to maim or mutilate him, or to expose him to the danger of loss of life, or to cause his death. 
That's very similar to the Old Testament slave laws, where the masters are forbidden from beating their slaves to a point where it causes permanent damage or death. So was slavery moral in Louisiana? No, just like it was not moral in the Bible. In fact, human trafficking was punishable by death in the Old Testament. You literally just finished saying... In some cases, the Israelites kept servants from surrounding nations as a result of war. How does invading a city or country, capturing their civilians, and forcing them into slavery not count as human trafficking to you? No, when we look at the larger context of all these slavery laws, it is quite clear that the no-stealing-people-and-selling-them-as-slaves applies to Hebrews, not to foreigners, especially given the explicit permission to buy permanent slaves from foreigners in Leviticus 25. Human trafficking was punishable by death doesn't make sense when combined with you can buy slaves from neighboring countries and from foreigners that live among you. The only way to make this work is by assuming that the prohibition against kidnapping only applies to Hebrews. Or just accept the fact that the Bible is not internally consistent. That would work too. I mean, that doesn't make these laws any more moral. If anything, it makes it worse. But then at least the books wouldn't contradict, right? Now, the type of slavery that was sanctioned by the Roman Empire in the New Testament context was a bit different than the type of system God instituted for Israel in the Old Testament. Yeah, it was. And the New Testament explicitly condoned that version of slavery as well, with commands for slaves to obey their masters in reverent fear of God, even the cruel masters, adding on that getting beaten for misbehaving is kind of pointless. You should want to get beaten for behaving well. And what does the Bible say to slave owners? Does it say to release the slaves? No. It does say not to treat them unjustly, keeping in mind that just treatment here includes the expectation of beating them with a rod now and again, and then it goes on to give further instructions to slaves to treat their masters with honor so that Christianity doesn't get a reputation for making slaves uppity, and be extra good for your master if your master is a Christian as well. But it's interesting to note that nowhere in the New Testament is this type of slavery condoned. Whoops. Whoops. Whoopsie. In fact, anywhere from 85 to 90% of the Roman population were slaves. And encouraging slaves to rebel against their masters would have meant execution or branding. Whatever happened to that early Christian willingness to go to their deaths for the sake of what is right? Why does that apply to believing that Jesus rose from the dead, but expecting them to teach against slavery is just a step too far? The early Christian willingness to believe in the face of persecution and very real threats of death is often held up as proof that Christianity is true. But they couldn't also fight for positive social change because that would be rocking the boat too much? How does this make any sense to you? Instead, the Apostle Paul taught that slaves were on equal terms with free people in the eyes of God. So be a good slave that you might be rewarded in heaven. And don't worry about the fact that your master gets to go to heaven too because he was a Christian as well. That's okay. You guys are equal. How good and moral. And encouraged change beginning in hearts. This radically countercultural teaching began to play out in history and would eventually inspire people like John Wesley and William Wilberforce to oppose modern slavery and support abolition. And the slave owners used the teachings of the Bible to support slavery and oppose abolition. Because why would God tell slaves to be good to their masters and tell masters to be just and fair to their slaves unless slavery itself is good? Yes, there are passages that can be interpreted in an anti-slavery way. The Bible can say whatever you want it to say if you're willing to cherry-pick it. Which is not a good argument for the truth of what's in it. This brings us to question number five. Is there any evidence outside the Bible that Jesus actually existed? A bit. Not much. It, it's not great no matter how you slice it. 
So this claim tends to make the rounds on social media from time to time, but the answer is really quite simple. There are 10 non-Christian sources that mention Jesus as an actual person within 150 years of his life. Do they mention Jesus as an actual person, or do they mention a group called Christians and explain that they believe in this Jesus guy? In my experience, it's almost universally the latter. He's mentioned by Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Plegan, Thallus, Suetonius, Lucian, Celsus, Marabar Serapion, and the Jewish Talmud. Now, this does not include the abundance of Christian historical witnesses who wrote about him, including the eyewitnesses. I'm not going to go through the whole list picking apart the various mentions one by one. I will just settle for pointing out that apologists are fond of exaggerating the importance of these ancient mentions, with most of them, as I said before, just being mentions of a group of people called Christians who believe in this Jesus guy. That does not add historical validity to Jesus. But also, I do accept that Jesus was probably a real guy. I very much doubt that his life is accurately recorded in the Bible, but the idea that the Jesus character in the Bible is based on a guy who actually existed is a pretty mundane claim in my opinion, and not one I consider worth arguing against. Although I would definitely agree that apologists do seem to be in the habit of overstating the evidence in favor of his historicity. But also, by abundant Christian witnesses who wrote about him including the eyewitnesses, amounts to Paul. Literally one guy. And he never even claimed to be a witness to Jesus' life, just a vision of him after he died. So again, with the overstatement. Now, if you want a resource that talks about all of these questions, I want to recommend a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. No, you really don't want to recommend that one. Turek is notoriously bad at apologetics. As far as I can tell, the only reason he's popular as an apologist is because he is charismatic and he's pretty good at getting hostile questioners at his events worked up. So if you don't actually think about what he's saying and just focus on the optics, it does make non-believers look bad. That's it for this one. Today's comment of the day comes to us from Jim Fortune, who says, Wasn't the whole point of speaking in tongues that you would be understood even by the people who have no common language? Not that nobody could understand you. Well, Jim, that depends on where we're reading in the Bible and what interpretative lens we're reading through. In Acts 2, when they speak in tongues, everyone hears the speaker in their own native language. All the other accounts are less specific, just mentioning the speaking in tongues. In Mark 16, it says they will speak in new tongues. The main interpretation for this, I think, is that there are two different types of speaking in tongues. The one discussed in Mark as being a new tongue, so I guess that would be a new language that nobody understands, and the one in Acts 2, where everybody hears the speaker in their own language. It's interesting that of the two, the one that survived into modernity is the one that is a new language that nobody can understand, because translating gibberish is impossible. Thanks for watching. Special thanks as always to my patrons, Jeffrey Dahmer, Mark McManus, Mark Hetchum, Clench Eastwood, Lynn Dobbs, What Jesus, and all the rest who are the minimal facts that add up to prove the truth that is my channel. If you'd like to only work for that conclusion if you do a whole bunch of assuming first, you can join us on Patreon for as little as a dollar per week over at patreon.com slash vicerhino. If you feel so inclined, you can also support the channel through direct donation or my Amazon wishlist, links to social media, all the ways to support the channel, and to my other projects like my podcast with my daughter, can be found at links.vicerhino.com. If for whatever reason you want to send me stuff, my P.O. Box address is in the description. See you next time! Thank you.